you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Hi there, listeners. It's John Horn. You might know me as the host of The Frame on KPCC and laist.com. The show has been on hiatus since March of 2020 when the pandemic arrived. Since that time, I've been continuing to report on arts and entertainment, and now I'm really back, not with a frame, but with retake. Each week, we'll examine this unique moment in entertainment, a time of unprecedented industry change, and one that many consider a modern golden age of storytelling. We'll challenge conventional show business wisdom, and we'll also recommend a few things to check out. This is Retake from KPCC and LA Studios. On this week's episode, a look ahead to the three big fall film festivals, plus my conversation with writer-director Jordan Peele about his new sci-fi thriller, Nope. Peele says he loves hearing about the conversations that are sparked by his films and people's different interpretations. You know, at the same time, I'm tr also trying to get that person who wants to turn their brain off and go see a big summer blockbuster and just say, look, I want to go see UFO. I want to just go <laughs> see a UFO movie. I want to go see, you know, one of those movies that, that one of those originals they don't make anymore. And that's what got me thinking this week about the basic concept of originality. In 1988, Bruce Willis starred in this movie. Happy trails, Hans. In years following, in a business where imitation is not only the sincerest form of flattery, but also the industry model, the die-hard knockoffs kept coming. Many movies were built around the premise of it's die-hard, but in a blank. Some examples out of many, speed is die-hard, but in a bus. Air Force One is die-hard, but in an airplane. Olympus Has Fallen is die-hard, but in the White House. Under Siege is die-hard, but in a battleship. And last, but unquestionably least, I know of a producer who actually pitched die-hard, but in an office building, which, of course, is die-hard. All that said, it's one thing to clone movies, it's quite another to pay homage to them, which is exactly what filmmaker Jordan Peele has done with his new film, Nope. It was fast. Too fast. Too quiet to be a plane. OJ, are you saying what I think you're saying? The internet is full of posts from Nope Gumshoes, who are identifying and aggregating what are known as Easter eggs. Visual references, camera angles, even wardrobe choices that could be, and in some cases actually were, as Peel told me, inspired by another movie or an actual event. A shot of a cyclone in Nope headed toward a farmhouse, and the detritus that falls from the sky mirrors a scene in The Wizard of Oz. The design of an alien spaceship calls to mind the 2016 movie Arrival. There's a motorcycle trick that's patterned after the same move in 1988's anime film Akira, and one of my favorite assumptions, even if it's a big stretch, Michael Wincott, who plays the film's cheeky cinematographer, Antlers Holst, is channeling Robert Shaw's performance in Jaws. Your husband's all right, Mrs. Brody. He's fishing. He just got a couple of stripers. We'll bring him in for dinner. We won't be long. We haven't seen anything yet. Hook her out. 
The lists are fun, but they miss the larger point. For all of Peel's inspirations, the story he's telling is not only fully original, but also intentionally fills a long-running cinematic omission, an alien story led by black characters. It doesn't require a lot of sleuthing to spot one of Peel's most obvious nope influences. There's even a poster for the film prominent in the background of one long scene. The movie is 1972's Buck and the Preacher. I'm Buck. The film, directed by and starring Sidney Poitier opposite Harry Belafonte, is not only a David versus Goliath tale, just like Nope, but also a black-led genre film, just like Nope. Yet for all of his homages and references, Peel certainly isn't making a sequel, remake, spin-off, reboot, or prequel, like everyone else is. How many of the top eight films at the box office this year fall into that Xeroxing strategy? Here's a small hint. All of them. Nope is off to a good but not spectacular start at the multiplex. And if you care about original distinctive voices like Peel's, buy a ticket. Because the more money all of the real copycats take in, the harder it becomes for Peel and his unconventional peers. Coming up, hear from Jordan Peele himself. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at Elias.com sweeps. And now to my conversation with filmmaker Jordan Peele about his new movie, Nope. I started off by asking him about the significance of his referencing the pioneering Western Buck and the Preacher in Nope. That 1972 film was directed by and starred Sidney Poitier. He played Buck and Harry Belafonte played the Preacher. You know, it always starts with me with this question and, and a blank slate. And I know what I what sort of resources I have at my disposal to some extent, but I'm going to try and you know, launch a, a film and an idea. And with this one, um, I felt a certain responsibility to be ambitious. And, and that did send me on a bit of a, a ride, um, I think, in reckoning with uh, you know, Black filmmakers and the erasure uh, of the past and the erasure of Black joy from the the Hollywood narrative. And, you know, the Wild West narrative, you know, where most cowboys were black. But when the Hollywood narrative of the Western, um, I think, became so romantic, we just weren't portrayed uh, anymore. And so, yes, that, that, that film is both significant as a, a spirit connection of the film, but it's also sort of part of the hidden Hollywood history of the film as well. Westerns, like horror stories, can be great movie genres in which a filmmaker can tackle bigger issues. They really work well for allegory. Do you think the same applies to kind of the alien movie genre? And if so, in what kinds of ways? It's interesting. You know, I think one of the biggest conversations about this film is, is genre. As it tends to be with, with my movies, 
and sort of how, how to frame it and what sort of box to put it in so we can understand. And I think part of that is it helps us understand how to watch. You know, that's what, that's what genre does. It reminds us of those familiar beats and those familiar um, uh, story uh, devices that um, have connotation and bring something with them. You know, what's exciting to me is this idea that all, that can all live together in one film. And so with this, with this film, there was a, a reckless abandon, <laughs> so to speak, as to what genre and what type of moments I could have in here. And that's why the, I think it's a, it's a movie with a spectrum. The title of the movie, Nope, is spoken by one lead character at a critical moment about what he won't do. But it also struck me as the kind of comment that you would hear from a Black audience watching a horror movie in a theater. And I remember watching Sam Raimi's The Evil Dead in Oakland in the early 80s. And the audience has very loud commentary. There's one guy who said, do not go in the closet. Do not mm-hmm. go in the closet. That commentary was almost, if not better than the movie itself. And I wonder if Nope is some sort of reference to that audience dynamic. Well, there's a reason for that. I mean, you know, I th- yes. There, I mean, there is a, a dynamic um, when watching horror that I feel like it's, it's togetherness. It's this togetherness and this demonstration of togetherness. That's why we get loud. That's why we, that's why we cheer. That's why when something's, you know, coming down the hallway, we kind of, we wince together and why when, you know, you have a funny reveal, we all laugh together. But yeah, there's an, there's an extra, I think, um, there's a different relationship that, that Black people have with horror movies I think from just the years of not sort of feeling fully represented in our one of our favorite genres, <laughs> or one of my favorite genres at least. You know, so I, I think that there's the talking to the screen thing, which I think was what Get Out was about, is about, you know, my sort of primal scream at the other side of the screen that I couldn't feel that representation of. You know, this this film here, I think in continuing with that story and my story in film is an exaltation of of many things, but certainly joy uh, more than my other films. Just joy is in there. I cannot think of many movies where as soon as the film ends, and this is what I witnessed, the audience assembles into these spontaneous little study groups where they start discussing with great animation their take on the film and what certain scenes mean. I'm wondering, in your mind, does that mean the film is open to interpretation or that maybe they didn't see the movie as clearly as you did? What do you think about those those moments? Because I couldn't believe how many people were doing it as soon as I saw the film and when it ended. Well, look, there's, you know, I there is a, uh, a clear interpretation of the film. There is a, you know, there's clarity. But I think where people go with the, the conversation that is the film, and, and that's the thing for me, right? I I think when people are looking for clarity, you know, they have to ask themselves, what does that mean? Do they really want Jordan Peele to shout a message at them? You know, no, I I don't think that they do. I think that they want to have a great conversation that they can feel smart and explorative in. And they want to feel like I know what I know, which is that they're they're smart human beings willing to sort of take on big ideas. And then, you know, at the same time. You know, I'm, I'm tr- also trying to get that person who 
wants to turn their brain off and go see a big summer blockbuster and just say, look, I want to just go on, I want to go see UFO. I want to just go see a UFO movie. You know, I want to go see, you know, one of those movies that, that one of those originals they don't make anymore. So anyway, once again, it's like the movie became a spectrum of, of, um, of things. And uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's part of its identity, obviously. So for better or for worse, I'm one of those people who watches a movie very much with uh, brain on. And a couple of things struck me. This film has a lot to say about spectacle and consumerism. First, there's this automatic impulse to try to make money from something horrible. Um, How do you cash in on what happened to you, no matter how bad it is? And second, as part of that, the audience is complicit in that negotiation because they show up for the thing that is being uh, commodified. I'm curious how that became part of your thinking, assuming I'm partially right about this idea. Yeah, you are. I mean, as soon as I realized I wanted to create a spectacle and and give people that big theatrical experience and that that would be something that would, you know, inspire vigor in the, um, in the cinema and the theatrical experience. And as soon as I did that, I said, well, okay, I kind of said, well, what is it about spectacle that we are powerless to in the first place? Cause you know, I'm always, I'm always going to try and find this thing about humanity that either I hadn't realized or, or I hadn't seen put in a film in, in, in my way. Um, and that thing became, yeah, we are hopelessly addicted to spectacle. And there are many ways in which it's, it's contributing to us becoming undone here. And so that became interwoven, I think, with every uh, character's journey in the film. There's also this overarching theme, to my mind at least, of dominion over the natural world. There's two ways that people tend to look at it, that we are stewards of this planet and everything that lives on it, and it's our obligation to care for it and for them, or that the world is some sort of gift to us and we can exploit it however we want. Is that dynamic also part of something that you were thinking about either consciously or subconsciously? Yes. I mean, look, Animals and nature and the natural world that we have, this is, you know, this is the true spectacle that we have. And we monetize it and we we exploit it. You know, we are leaving it worse than we got it. And that is, um, <laughs> that's something that the industry, I think, has to reckon with as well. Uh, you know, not only the Hollywood industry, which this movie is about, but the media at large were an industry of spectacle. Cinecloud. Cinecloud. OJ! It's in the cloud! Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, no. Run, OJ! Run! I want to ask you about the soundscape. The way that score and sound effects come together, I want to ask you about your collaboration with Johnny Byrne, who's your sound designer and supervising sound editor. What was important to you in blending natural sounds, artificial sounds, maybe artificial sounds that come out of the natural world and score? Yeah, I mean, Johnny Byrne and I just got started working early. He's a just absolute beast, I mean, in, in what he does. I'm, I'm blown away by him. He did Under the Skin, which is one of my favorite, and and best made films I've seen. 
Um, and uh, when we, we, we got together, we said, look, I, we have to put the audience in the presence of this thing. We have to put them under it. You know, they have to, you know, audience does not get to go to a, mo- a theater often and feel like, like, holy shit, it's, it's here. You know, and so very early, our conversations became about the environmental um, effects of just something that big, that silent, that um, deft at hiding in the clouds. And he, you know, this is a guy who has, he's, he's like, all right, well, I've got a library of wind for us to look through, you know, and it's like, oh, sh- okay, yes, that's what, <laughs> that's what I wanted to hear. So, uh, so yeah, we, you know, we had this wonderful uh, challenge and task of, um, you know, watching him not only access all the sounds that imply this thing is here when we don't see it, but then, of course, designing a new aspect of sounds sort of from, you know, by slowing down, you know, bird calls and basically mining new sounds from the natural world. This is the first movie that you've made since the pandemic and really, you know, not only killed millions of people, but upended life for everyone. People have experienced trauma and grief to varying degrees, of course, in ways they hadn't before. Do you think that changes the audience's relationship? to horror in a way about how you process loss and grief and danger? No, I don't think so. I I think that there's always a time and a place for the right horror or the wrong horror, um, if that makes sense. But I think that people, we we always do have a need to uh, exercise our demons in a way. And people do it different ways. People do it with different... um, so, you know, some people do it, you know, with a television, some people do it with, with, you know, books, you know, for me, uh, and for me, it's horror. Some people do it with, with the news, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> but we repress our fear to the point where I think we need an outlet or we'll really lose it. I want to ask you about Orpheus, the Greek myth about somebody who can't, but help look back. Um, a lot of this movie is about not looking. There's a scene where a horse is either put in blinkers or blinders. You have to avert your gaze, except there's one person who lives by making images, and he can't avert his gaze. He wants to actually gaze. What are you trying to say about, I don't know if it's narcissism, but about knowing that there's a price to pay for looking where you shouldn't look? Well, I, you know, I think with the, I think with the character that you're, you're talking about, if you're talking about the, um, Michael Wincott's character, um, Holst, the, yes. uh, the cinematographer. Yeah. Um, you know, I, you know, all these characters are sort of an aspect of myself. And I think the Holst character is an acknowledgement, a sort of penance for being on this side of the camera at all, which, you know, in terms of this movie, I'm, I'm sort of acknowledging, or at the, at the very least in terms of uh, writing this movie, I think I had to in, acknowledge an inherent violence that is <laughs> filming and movie making and the spectacle and the and a toxicity that goes with seeking attention within the industry um anyway it's fun fun little brain of mine that's <laughs> yeah but it's it's not just that scene it's the there's an earlier scene involving daniel's character oj and a horse where the only thing that matters is getting the shot it doesn't matter if it's safe it doesn't matter what the consequences are and that 
obviously is something that you see and hear about on movie sets. Sometimes it actually kills people, like we have to get the shot. So it does seem like that goes into that whole same idea of spectacle and the result is more important than the consequences of getting there. Exactly, which goes to that sort of greater point of the of exploitation, which it just it just felt like um, you know one of the initial uh, influences was uh, Wizard of Oz. And I thought a lot about King Kong as well. These films that are spectacle films, but and and they're they're beautiful and just masterfully done. And they both have a very a dark relationship with the idea of exploitation. And um, I wanted to make a spectacle film that sort of unmasked that a bit. Let me ask you this last thing. Your movies have been defined by intimacy. It, it may be physical. It may be emotional. You're working on a, what I will say, not in a euphemistic way, is a bigger canvas. You're outside. You're out in the open. How do you preserve character intimacy when your physical space is much greater, that there's clouds, there's sky, there's land, the canvas is bigger, but if you're not focusing on the emotional and inner lives of your characters, all of that doesn't matter. That's right. I mean, it's all, this. I mean, this is what I, I, I'll say about film. I think it's, you know, everything needs to come together perfectly to make a perfect movie. But I do think that acting is so important and that People are so important and they, that, that they are what people are coming to see. And I think if the acting is, is amazing in a film and everything else is, is not, you have a good movie. And I think if, if everything else is great, but you don't have great actors doing what they're there to do, um, you don't have a great movie. So, yeah, for the first concern for me at any point as a director is going to be let's we, we need this person to connect. We need the audience to connect to this person in this relationship. And, uh, and yeah, so that's, that's, you just, just put the camera up close and let them work. Jordan, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure you. always talking with you. That was writer and director Jordan Peele. His movie Nope is in theaters now. I'm LA's food editor, Gab Chabran. So we are going to do the chicken katsu damburi. A taco is not just a taco. A pizza is not just a pizza. And noodles aren't just noodles. We focus on all natural ingredients, okay? Everything is by hand. I explore how food connects us to the social fabric of Southern California. Vietnamese sandwich shop here on the corner of Ford and North Broadway in Chinatown. And tells the region's story. LA's independent journalism, fact-based journalism. And finally, here's my weekly chat with KPCC Morning Edition host, Suzanne Watley. This week, we discuss the not far off end of the summer movie season and what fall might bring besides leaves that change color, except, of course, here in Los Angeles. I started by explaining the movie industry mindset as seasonal change is afoot. It's both a beginning and an end with a weird kind of purgatory in between. So the biggest summer movies already have opened. There are a few notable releases that have yet to come. Brad Pitt's Bullet Train next Friday. But it's going to be really slow at the box office from now until probably mid to late September. And if you know anything about sailing, you could call it the doldrums. Little to no wind at sea, little to no new or good movies at the multiplex. If you're patient enough... 
the quality of the films will get a lot better. But to really understand what sets the fall apart, you need to consider three different cities. Oh, how so? Well, the cities are Venice, Telluride, and Toronto, and Uh. each hosts a major film festival, and they run back to back to back. I'll be covering the Telluride Film Festival in a little more than a month over the Labor Day weekend. So before I talk about these festivals, I'm going to give you a list of movies that have either had their world or North American premieres at Telluride. So let's have a little quiz. not part of the quiz, but... Am I seeing people dancing in my head? Yeah, you are at a train station. Uh, It's Jai Ho uh, by A.R. Rahman from the great film Slumdog Millionaire. Slumdog Millionaire, by the way, in which they play a game, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, is the first title. The King's Speech, Argo, 12 Years a Slave, Birdman, Spotlight, Moonlight, The Shape of Water, Nomadland. Ah, they're all Best Picture winners. Bingo! You win. (laughs) You don't win a million dollars. But every Best Picture winner since 2007 has debuted at a festival, a lot of them at Telluride. And while there have been a few exceptions, like this year's Best Picture winner, Coda, premiered at the Sundance Festival, Bong Joon-ho's Parasite debuted at Cannes, every other Best winner for the last 20 years has first shown at Venice, Telluride, or Toronto. And as I said, Telluride has the best track record in the category, even if at festivals says that's not its goal. Now, for people who aren't familiar with the the meat of these festivals, it's not just an opportunity for people to preview new movies. It's really a marketplace. Toronto, especially. I mean, Toronto, like Sundance, a lot of movies go there um, without distribution and looking for a sale. Venice, you know, you got to have a lot of money to go to Venice. So it isn't kind of common folk. Telluride uh, has a lot more eclectic viewers uh, and audience members, but it's not really a market But, you know, the main thing is they're debuting a lot of new, important, and generally really good films. Um, So Venice has already announced some of its uh, slate. Darren Aronofsky, who made Black Swan, among other movies, is taking his new movie, The Whale, to Venice. Noah Baumbach, one of my favorite directors, I think he's also one of your favorites, uh, will premiere his new movie, White Noise, in Venice. Alejandro Iñárritu, who made Birdman and The Revenant, has made Bardo, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths, which sounds like an adaptation of a Gabriel Garcia, Garcia Marquez novel, but it's not. And they also have, uh, and then Toronto has Ryan Johnson's Knives Out sequel, a Viola Davis movie called The Woman King, and a film from comedian Billy Eichner, plus Steven Spielberg semi-autobiographical movie, The Fablemans. Ooh, I love Knives Out. I can't wait to see what the sequel is. <laughs> Daniel Craig playing that uh, that brilliant and laconic detective. And we have not one, but two sequels, so you will be satisfied for at least a couple of years. Oh, good. Something's got to bridge me over since the Downton Abbey sequel this summer. Um, anything else that you'd like to add about uh, All Things Festival? Well, Telluride doesn't announce its slate, so you don't find out until a day before you get there. And what? Part of Why the- is that? They want people to come for the festival, not for a certain movie, um, and that you're, it's just an article of faith that you'll show up and you will trust that the programmers have 
picked a lot of good movies that you might be interested in seeing. So even though we don't yet know what's going to play there, I have my hopes. Amsterdam, the new movie from David O. Russell. Uh, Babylon from Damien Chazelle, who made Whiplash and La La Land. The Banshees of Inner Sharon from Martin McDonough, who made three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. And I hope Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, the trailer for it just came out. He debuted Shape of Water, Telluride. So fingers crossed we're going to see some of those. All right. So uh, looking forward to that and looking forward to your reporting from that festival. KPCC's John Horn reporting on all things arts and entertainment. Appreciate your take this morning. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the July 29th edition of Retake. We'll see you again next week. I'm John Horn. Retake is produced and engineered by Michael Cosentino and Monica Bushman. The editor is Suzanne Levy. And special thanks to Sabir Brara and the entire KPCC LAS newsroom. Alayist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events.